Uh, but I don't think my kids care and I wouldn't have it any other way because yeah, that's at the end of the day, yeah, at the end of the day, it, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I'd rather be yeah. their dad. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. Cause you know, I was in this locker room and we're winning championships and my kids could care less about who Emmett Smith were and Troy yep. Aikman. they could care less, but I could imagine if I was a kid and I was seven years old and I was in the playground and I said, my dad's my a dad, Navy yeah. SEAL. He kicked your dad's <laughs> ass. I mean, <laughs> yeah. All right. Welcome to the Darren Woodson Show. Today's guest is Andy Stump, former Navy SEAL, wingsuit, skydiver, uh, CrossFit uh, weren't were you the pilot for, for CrossFit HQ for a while? I mean, your rap sheet is, is pretty extensive. Yeah. So uh, we've got a lot to get into, but we're so glad to have you on the, on the, uh, on the show today. How you doing, man? I'm good. And, you know, full disclosure, resumes are an interesting thing. I made most of that stuff up. I just Googled <laughs> stuff. It looked entertaining. It looked like people would pay attention. So I just wrote down some fancy stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I, I saw that you, like, you'd logged, like, you know, 35,000 miles in. And I was like, is that, is that even possible? Like, 35,000, like, about 3,500 flight hours. No, I know. I was, just, I was being sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't picked up on it yet. No, honestly, so impressive. Obviously, you know, your journey through the SEALs and uh, the things you overcame while a SEAL to come back to, you know, complete a combat mission is, is unbelievable. Um, but I think really, you know, one of the big things, Andy, that, that we like to, we like to start with is the journey and, and how you came, you grew up in Northern California and, um, you know, want to hear about your childhood, you know, what the family dynamic was that really, that ingrained some of these, the things, the work ethic, the dedication, you know, the, the thrill seeking, all those things that make you who you are and, and, and so impactful in our community, how that started. So if you could just take us back to your childhood days and, and what that was like. Yeah, I have no idea how any of this started and I'm sure I've put, you know, my parents have aged in dog years. But uh, I, I, my upbringing, I often, you know, when I talk with people, they think that, and maybe this is because of books or TV shows or movies, they think that there is like this incredible allure around the SEAL community or even just the special operations community. And most of the guys, if not all of the guys that I work with, they came from very humble and very average backgrounds to include myself. I mean, my family was middle class at best. Uh, we lived in, I was born and raised in Santa Cruz, California, which yeah. they say is Northern California. But if you look at it on the map, it's dead center. Yeah. So I have no idea what they call it that. I grew up in Fresno and Vacaville, yep. actually. So not far. My wife's family's all in Santa Cruz. Yeah, because Santa Cruz is better than Fresno. But we That's don't have to dig too deep into that. <laughs> a, little, yeah. a little more. So, yeah. I love it. Let's there start with some trash. Because yeah. 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 all we all we hear about is Vacaville. Yeah. Vacaville yeah. this, yeah. Vacaville yeah. that. I tell you yeah, what, but, Fresno. But when Fresno people has, wanted to leave Vacaville to go do something fun, they came over the hill to see. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Or to buy weed. One of the two. Right. <laughs> you can do both on the same trip. You know, you know it doesn't true. have to be exclusive. That's no, true. but I mean that's so. That's where I grew up. I was a beach kid. You know, I did junior lifeguards. Um, I played water polo and baseball in high school. I worked for my father, who was a brick and stone mason, and I would say a lot of my work ethic in core values. Well, actually all of my work ethic and core values, I would say came from my parents. I would say the community of men that I worked with later in life definitely refined that, but the building blocks, it came from my mom and dad. Um, you know, working for my dad since I was 11 on a job site or I'm not on a job site, but job sites every summer 
where it was just physical labor and it sucked. And I didn't What'd have, you do? I wasn't, what did your dad do? He was a mason. He was a brick, brick and stone mason. How about so you? He was, no, I just said, here's that part. Yeah. Can I? He was the mason and I was the hod carrier. So I moved stones and bricks around and he built amazing stuff with them. And it sucked because I was 11 and I didn't want to move stuff around, but I saw the value of hard work. I saw the value of integrity Hmm. and my parents were extremely fair with me, but they also set extremely rigid standards. And if I deviated from the standards, there was a consequence. There was no, for me, I wasn't able to like bump the boundaries 1% of the time. Uh, you know, I had to get a 3.0 or I didn't get my driver's license. So I got a 2.99. They're like, listen, that's not a 3.0. You know, whereas most parents I see in the modern day, they're doing the, the opposite. They're bending backwards to facilitate their kids getting the license absent the standard. And I don't think that's a successful approach long-term. So my parents, they really set my moral compass. And I don't know why really I wanted to be a SEAL, but when I was about 11 or 12, I had first heard about him through my dad who served in Vietnam. He was not a SEAL, but he had some peripheral duties around SEALs. Um, and he brought him up in a casual conversation and it just sounded fascinating. And I don't know why. So I went to the library and I found some books on him and I read books and I was just hooked from the age of, like I said, 11 or 12. And that's all I really cared about. It's all I wanted to do. So my friends were studying for their SATs and applying to colleges. And, you know, I was going to the pool and swimming and working out and trying to get ready for the pipeline to go. What I thought I knew about the pipeline, you know, in 1996, 97, Hmm. to say the internet wasn't, was, wasn't what it is today. So, I mean, it was like, rumors and you know pieces of paper like oh yeah you got to do a lot of push-ups and a lot of running whereas now i mean you can go online and basically figure out the demands of every single training day inside of the pipeline wow. and i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing but i just didn't have that information and so i trained really hard went to uh, join the navy when i was a junior in high school they have a program called the delayed entry program which allows you to be enlisted but you can defer your boot date uh, boot camp start date for about 365 days so I joined when I was a junior. So my parents both had to sign on the dotted line with me. Um, yeah. And then I left for boot camp shortly after high school. And I had actually, I, I was very lucky. I didn't know this at the time, but my route to the SEAL community was very efficient. I did boot camp and then to a very short occupational school, straight into BUDS, which is the initial pipeline. I made it through with the class that I started. So I did not have a performance role or an injury role. And then straight to jump school and then checked into SEAL Team 5. All of this pre-9-11, of course. And did two deployments uh, at SEAL Team 5. My first one was to Japan because there was nothing really going on in the world. And then my second deployment was to Guam. And I mean, honestly, all we really did in peacetime is we, we worked out really hard, we shot our guns a lot, and then we tried to kill ourselves with alcohol. That was basically <laughs> what we did every day of the week. And it was everything that I thought the SEAL teams could possibly be. I was like, this is fucking awesome. I'm never leaving this. I'm doing this for the rest of my life. And then 9-11, you know, kicked off and we went from conceptual to practical very quickly. And now, what did that look right like? And I don't want to cut you off, but what, what was that yeah, like? Yeah. I mean, because, you know, 9-11 was, you know, as tragic as it was, I was actually, I, I remember that, you know, being, a, being in the NFL, playing with the Cowboys and, and it was devastating to the country. But, sure. more, but more so as, as someone that was in, in, you know, the military as, as, as a SEAL, what was that like when you saw that take place? I knew there was going to be a change occupationally. And quite frankly, I thought it was going to happen faster than it did. Um, you know, the military can move swiftly 
but not massive portions of the military. I mean, it takes a lot to get uh, uh, an operational unit overseas. You know, we had the the amount of forces that we had at you know peak times in both Iraq and Afghanistan. We're talking hundreds of flights per month and cargo ships full of equipment, which they can assemble quickly, but getting them staged properly. You know, I remember watching the second aircraft go in live. I was in an apartment in my apartment in San Diego, and I thought, okay, this is going to change our job for sure. There's going to be actions that are going to be taken. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, I should probably go to work now because we'll definitely be getting on a plane to Afghanistan by 6 p.m. today. And that just wasn't the case. Um, that you know, I think it was late October that U.S. forces actually finally got to Afghanistan and started taking action. But I didn't actually go to Afghanistan until late 2002. Um, and I did that in a capacity. I was on the security detail for their president at the time, Hamid Karzai. And then I went to Iraq for the invasion of Iraq and then back to Afghanistan in 2000, late 2003 for the first time. So it was slower than I thought it was going to be, but it did shift the community. We went from training for war to actually executing war. And, you know, if I'm being totally honest, what we found out really early is that we sucked really? because we had been, we had been training on Vietnam tactics. Imagine uh, I mean, I'll try to make an analogy between the NFL. Imagine if the only uh, tapes that you could watch of the team that you were going to go play were from two decades ago. Yeah, wishbone. Uh, you know? And, that's, yeah. and yeah. that's all you had to do your research on. And that's the, you know, that's the last game you actually played for real was two decades ago. So you can sit down and, you know, chalk talk stuff and say, hey, if, we were, if this happens, we're going to do this. But you've never actually done it. Mm. And then you get overseas and you realize, man, we're not necessarily as good as we thought we were because the world has shifted and – we're probably behind the power curve. Now, we didn't have any tactical failures because we were technologically and tactically more advanced than our enemy. They are, and I'm being generous, a few centuries behind there. And that's what you know saved a lot of American lives. But we adapted rapidly, and it was a shift. I mean, I, I used to think about deployments as, hey, you know, I'm going to put on 15 pounds of muscle and run during this deployment because nothing's going on to is it going to be Iraq this pump or Afghanistan this pump? Which ones are going to be, you know, and it's just a full philosophical thought process difference pretty rapidly post 9-11. So after that, the rest of my career, um, I did combat deployments at development group from 2002 to 2006. Uh, got hurt on the job in 2005, came back to San Diego, was a BUDS instructor for about two years. Can you walk us, and I, I don't mean to cut you off, and and because again, I, I don't, I don't want to jump over something that was pretty pivotal pivotal uh, in your journey and, and having to battle back and, and, and go back and be an instructor for a couple of years, but um, what, to walk us through that injury and what that was like, you know, describe what you can on the mission, um, yeah. and, and, then, and then maybe talk through the injury uh, that, that you sustained. So the mission wasn't anything high speed. And that's another misconception a lot of people have is, you know, like everything that you do has this level of, you know, classification or secrecy, or you can't talk about it. And that's really not the case. I mean, I remember we were going after a kidnapping cell. I don't remember exactly who they were targeting, probably local politicians in Iraq at the time. And it was like, you know, I think we were 30 days into deployment and we had gone out and we had been banging targets from sundown until sunup from those 28 days straight. I mean, flying helicopters until they were running out of gasoline and just town after town after town, house after house after house, just pursuing people. So there wasn't anything different about that night. Um, I just, you know, I've, I'm sure we've all been to Vegas or watch people on a, on a hot streak gambling. 
And if you extend the timeline long enough, you know, if you're playing craps, you're going to throw seven at some point. Mm -hmm. And I kind of equate that actually to what happened. There was eight guys who were hurt uh, on that target that night. So, and my injury was one, I would say one of the least severe. So I got shot in the hip from about 15 feet away uh, by a dude in the window with an AK 47. But there were people internal who got shot. There were people who were blown up. Um, It was a shit show for sure. And we didn't do anything wrong. It just, you know, we, I don't know what happened. I've talked with a lot of the guys who were there that night. And I think just sometimes you're on the wrong side of the coin. It's, I mean, I'm I'm sure it happens in football too. You'll see somebody execute a perfect tackle, but they break their collarbone. And it's like, there's no explanation for it. They did everything right, but they still got injured and you have no answer as to why. And that's kind of what happened. So it kind of threw me on my, well, when I got shot, it definitely threw me on my back, but from a mental perspective, you know, I was operating at a very high level and then I wasn't doing anything. So it took me a long time to work myself back from that. And I would say emotionally and mentally more than physically, Mm. you know, the the body is certainly very malleable. And I'm sure you guys have seen some horrendous injuries people can come back for where you're like, well, that dude's done. And then a year later, he's not done. You're like, holy shit, that's pretty impressive. (laughs) But, uh, I went to San Diego as basically a rest and recovery job. So I became an instructor at the basic schoolhouse buds, uh, which is the entry pipeline for everybody, which was cool because I got, I was able to develop a deeper understanding of why the training was the way that it was and what, what the evolutions actually stood for and why we did the things that didn't make any sense to me when I went through as a student, because nothing makes sense as a student. And then you go back with 10 years under your belt and you're like, Oh, Okay. All Mm. of this has a purpose. I know exactly why we're doing this. And I put a package in to become an officer while I was a BUDS instructor, which was uh, accepted. So I became an officer and then literally walked across the street to SEAL Team 3, did another combat deployment for most of the year in 2010, and then was medically retired in 2013. So I would have liked to stay in, but my body, I mean, it's, I don't preaching to the choir to you guys who played in the NFL. It's a war of attrition. Right. You know, Knees, shoulders, necks, hips, backs, guys are jacked up. And it's just from the miles. It's, yeah. you know, yeah. it's from the lower impact, usually. I mean, obviously, there's some high impact stuff. But it's the ounces on your joints and muscles and tendons over time that become pounds. And then guys are just jacked up. So my body got to a point where I physically could not finish uh, a workup or the training environment anymore. So they made the decision to medically retire me. So I maintain my... Uh, military benefits and I get a retirement, which I would not get because I only did 17 years versus 20. Yeah. And that was about it. I mean, that's kind of the, the broad talk, way. To, talk uh, way through, you mentioned, you mentioned the mental aspect was yeah. difficult. Uh, talk us through that, that last combat mission that you went on first time back, you had a couple years training other seals. What was that like going back there? Did you feel different? Was it just like riding a bike and you were back into it? Or was there something that you had to overcome mentally to get yourself to go and, and uh, you know, react full speed and to, to go through the motions full speed without any hesitation? From a, like a rote perspective of understanding the tactics and being able to execute them, that wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, I had been in for long enough that, you know, the three core competencies to be a SEAL is you have to be able to shoot, move, and communicate. And if you've done that for a while, and I'm sure that you guys could break down uh, football into some very basic core competencies. And after a decade, you can kind of do it with your eyes closed. You know, you can always refine it and you want to continue to try to be as good as you can, but you understand the core things that make you good at playing that sport. And the SEAL community is relatively the same thing. But I had a lot of questions that I had to work myself through. Of 
you know, I, I ask myself often, like, did I do something wrong that night? Like, where did I make the mistake that I ended up on the, on the wrong side of the dice or the wrong side of the odds? And I talked with a lot of guys and just tried to figure out, you know, we go overseas again in 2010. And I remember I was, uh, before going into a compound or a, a door or a room, we call it stacking, where there's a lot, when you're moving around in open areas, there's a lot of accordion mm-hmm. where guys will get farther apart and then closer together and farther apart and closer together. And you usually want to go into rooms or structures kind of en masse. So you want to have guys closer together. So you call it stacking at the threshold where you allow the accordion to shrink. And I remember being in that stack on the first door, getting ready to go back into a combat environment overseas. And the last time I had done that, I had gotten shot. Mm. And I remember thinking in my head, like, well, we're about to find out if you still have this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got the squeeze from behind me, which is our nonverbal, I'm ready to go. And you pass the squeeze up to the number one man. When the number one get, man gets it, it's, you know, it's game on. Yeah. I mean, that's like, I mean, and again, every time we have someone from the military, like, you, you keep comparing it to the NFL. I'm sure you guys know. We don't know. It's, it's very different. I never, I never went into a game wondering no. if I was going to get shot or if I was going to walk out of that game. I never, it never crossed my mind if I was going to walk out of that game alive. You guys. That's and, a good thing, though. Yeah, I'm it is. I, I agree. Although I would watch that sport if there was like flamethrowers and like, 100%. Tigers, tigers, 100%. And street, I'd be like, right, and near break. halftime, yeah, near halftime, we're going to let out four cougars. Yeah, yeah we've, got <laughs> have, we've got to have 400 guys on the roster because 300 of them likely are not going to walk away from this. But, but I mean, it's the same deal, right? A guy tears his ACL or he's got an Achilles. Until he gets hit or makes that hard cut in live action, you don't know if you're ready. You can practice. You can go through all your routines. You can do everything that you need to do. But until you go through live action, and I mean, yeah. that sound, sounds very, very similar. Well, and that's why, I mean, it's easy for me to draw metaphors or analogies. I'm just trying to connect it via a same vernacular. I would, yeah. say that, I would say what you guys did and what we did, actually, though, is probably defined by its similarities and not its differences. You know, mm-hmm. you're only, it's a team sport. If you find yourself by yourself, it's probably not a good thing. You need to have good communication. The execution and what it looks like, of course, it looks different. But there are still a ton of similarities between the two activities. Yeah. You said something earlier that that after your injury, you dealt with some emotional stuff going into being a BUDS instructor. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about that because this is a conversation we actually just had about embracing your role. So your mind is is going from the, the action you know, stuff you've dreamed about since you were 11 years old. Now you've got to take on a different role, which is as an instructor. I can't think that was, you know, your preference at the time. So talk to us a little bit about your embracing that new role coming from the action that you'd always dreamed about. Um, I think my biggest thing for me is I didn't know what my role was going to be in the future. I knew what I wanted it to be, but I did not know if from a physiological perspective, the nerve damage was going to repair itself to a point where I could continue. So I mean, during that time period, I've never been told so many times by people with advanced degrees in medicine, I would ask them questions and they'd be like, nah, I don't know. Like, fuck you, man. I didn't go to medical school. I could tell you that same thing too. Like, what's your problem? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I didn't want to go. Um, and then when I left there and I look back on it now, that tour was actually the most rewarding tour that I did in the 17 mm. years, because you got to be part of the mechanism that grows the SEAL community into the future. You are literally a piece of the filter and you can really mentor people and you can connect with them and you can teach them about what's going on in the world and in the SEAL community and prepare them. And you can leave the SEAL community a better place than you went into it as, which is what I think the goal should be. But to do that, 
you have to get past your own ego. And it was interesting because there were some instructors there who for them, it was all about being a power trip. Screw you guys. You guys will never be as good as me. Blah, 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 blah. How dare you this? Da, da, da. And I was, I would talk to him like, Hey, we all volunteered for this in peacetime because we watched Charlie Sheen and they were running around with handlebar mustaches and MP5s jumping off of bridges. And we're like, sweet, I'm going to do that. These dudes are watching reports every day on Fox news and CNN about people getting vaporized by IEDs. And they're trying to make their way into a combat oriented operational community during wartime. So maybe I ought to shut the fuck up and give them a little bit of respect. Yeah. 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 You know, like one of the questions I have for you is, you you know, you talked about you're mentoring some of these young men that, that are coming in. These are some of the, some of the guys that are coming in are some badass guys. So, I mean, I'm yeah. seriously, when you, when you came in, one of the, th- one of the questions I had for you, when you came, when you went into buds, what was your confidence level like going in and knowing that you've been surrounded with some of the best? I think everybody at buds, you know, most people are like, Oh, I never, you know, I was good the whole time. And, and maybe they were, but I would say, I think most people, there's a level of like trepidation, not hesitation, but they just, you just don't know because it's the same thing, right? You can read books about it, but until you make, you know, until you try it in live action, until you're really getting pressed in the crucible, how well do you actually know yourself? It's easy to say, oh, I would never quit and I'm a badass. Well, let me starve you for a few days and keep you up for seven days straight and then make you hypothermic and we'll just kind of see what kind of badass you are. Right. So there is, uh, I would say there's always in the back of their mind, probably not doubt, but just a little bit of trepidation and maybe just concern. Um, and I think it should be there. It, you should have doubt. That program, it works. The attrition rate over, you know, historically is 75% in the summer months. And in the winter months, it'll bump up into the to mid to high 80th percentile, meaning eight to nine out of 10 people who go to that program don't make it through. Wow. What do you so, think was about your mindset going through that, that allowed you, like, I mean, you just threw the numbers out. You know, the attrition going through buds is, is extremely high. So what do you think it was that allowed you to get through it your first time through? Whereas, you know, a lot of people and, and even people that we've talked to have had to go through it two, three times. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I would say it probably ties into what I opened with, you know, with my parents and work ethic and my dad and understanding consequences and having integrity and, you know, another, I mean, another thing that probably played in my favor is I didn't have a plan B, which now mm-hmm. looking back, I'm like, I, well, I didn't realize how many people got hurt in buds mm-hmm. because again, you know, information distribution was not what it is now in 1996 and 1997. I didn't realize about 20% of people who go there, they at least get rolled back in training because they get hurt. And then if they get rolled back a second time, they get dropped. So I made it through absent injuries, but I also didn't have a plan B. So when things got really shitty, I didn't really have any like, compare and contrast. Like, well, looks like being a truck driver is a, you know, a better yeah. idea now. And I sure as hell didn't want to be a brick mason like my dad. So that was never an option. So, and it just, I don't know. I mean, I don't have a great answer for that. I just took everything one day at a time and one evolution at a time. And, you know, pretty about six to hell week is the fifth week of training. And about 90% of the attrition occurs in that week. And then you develop a pretty tight bond with the people that you're going through Mm -hmm. training with, even during hell week and beyond that. And it becomes a very close self-supporting ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we could all agree. It's easier to complete difficult tasks with somebody else. Even two is so much greater than one. 
That's right. Uh, and that, and that's kind of, I mean, that's really is the DNA of what it means to be a seal anyway. You should never be by yourself. The hair should be going up on the back of your neck if you're ever by yourself, because the minimum fighting size, fighting unit size is two. Yeah. You know, so it sounds like, you know, the interesting thing about goals, because you talked about it earlier, you set the goal of being a seal at age 11, but you didn't really know what all that entailed. And a lot of times we set these goals, we really don't know what it's going to be like once we reach it, but we still have that goal. So it sounds like that goal was so big for you, you weren't going to quit no matter what, because you wanted to achieve that and you'd want to achieve it for, for so long. I would agree with that. Yeah. So Andy, as you transition out, right, you are, are uh, medically retired. There's a, and you mentioned that you weren't re- You didn't want to, you wanted to continue on, but your body just didn't allow you emotionally. And, and speaking more towards identity, because I know in the military, when that role is done for you, how did you handle that? And it was that something you struggled with? Like, man, I'm no longer a seal. Like I've been a seal for 17 years. You know, I, what, am, what am I going to do now? What was that transition like for you? Uh, it was rough because I had focused most of my time, energy, and effort on achieving being a SEAL and then doing the best job that I could when I was in. And it was a job that, you know, it would make the news sometimes. And then you literally and metaphorically hang up your uniform and then you're sitting there watching the news with no impact mm-hmm. or ability to do anything about it. And it's tough. And I think that's probably the number one point where people struggle in their transition from the military is they lose a sense of purpose. Um, and the military is a very task oriented organization and other people are largely setting up these tasks for you. So you have a task in front of you, you knock it down and there's another one and boom, 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 boom. If you're not used to setting up tasks for yourself, you're going to struggle. You have incredible work ethic, but you it's, you know, a vector has to have both an amplitude and a direction. And that's what people need to have coming out of the military as well. You can't have just one or you're going to be spinning off into space. And a lot of the guys do that. And then they seek solace in alcohol because, you know, the military is doing a better job, I think, of reining in the drinking culture. But it is a foundational principle in the military to include the sealed. I mean, it's just booze is a thing. So it becomes an easy escape for guys when they get out. And uh, I don't know if this is true in the football world, but I know it's certainly true in cops and uh, first responders. There's a very it's a larger than normal subsection. Statistically, they die somewhere between five to 10 years after getting out. Mm-hmm. Like most cops will die from heart disease between five to seven years after leaving service as a law enforcement officer. And I know one, two, three, three, somewhere between three to seven guys who died within five to seven years after getting out who were incredibly healthy inside of the teams. And I don't know what it was. I don't know if they just got so lost that they punished themselves to the point where their heart gave out or they had too much that they dealt with while they were in. But it's, it's an interesting journey for guys that get out. What, how did the, the military, and I know that there are a ton of foundations out there and I know you support a handful of those, um, but helping guys transition, but what is the military doing from your perspective um, pre-retirement or pre um you know, being, you know, what's the, what's the proactive, yeah, de, but decommissioned coming out of the, coming out of the military, what, what are they doing to prepare for next steps or at least coach you along like, Hey, here's how you translate the skills that you've acquired through the military into civilian life. So I can only speak 
to when I got out, which was the last right. day of June, 2013. I have no idea what they're doing now, but the simple answer into what they were doing then would be nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not the military's role to prepare the service member uh, for when they get out. There are a shit ton of programs that you can yeah. access when you are in. Um, and they make you go through a program or they made me go through a program called TAPS, which I believe stands for a transition assistance program. I don't know what the S stands for. Maybe it was just TAP, transition assistance program. Believe it was a two week course. I went to two days of it because I had other stuff I needed to take care of. And then I, I did it all on my own. Yeah. You know, but that's, you know, look, I, I, I don't want to compare, like Tyler said, I don't want to compare you know, football world and in and, and, and the military at the same time, but the similarities are that transition. And I always talk about one thing I've always missed was that walk down the tunnel, going to the field, like more than anything was the fact that we were, you were with your guys, 50 or 47 men on that, uh, that team that's going to go out there on that football field. And there's something about the buzz and the nervousness and it's a quiet nervousness and you go through this, this situation and I'm sure you went through this and this, I'm sure there was exhilarating. How do you, how do you feel that void or how have you felt, uh, feel that void of going on these missions and now you've, you've, you're transitioning and you're out and you're not doing this anymore. What has been that, what, what has been that fulfillment for you? Yeah. You know, I don't know if you can fill that void. I mean, I'd throw it back at you. Have you been ever def- able to find anything? Hell that no. Place that- no. And so I, I haven't either. Um, I haven't been able to find anything that has simulated what it feels like to be on a helicopter one minute out from a target that you're getting reports in your headset that like, Hey, we're already receiving fire, you know, attack helicopters and aircraft are already doing pre-assault fires on the helicopter. And by the way, or on the compound, you're one minute out. Like you're going into a hornet's nest, you know, you're going to get it on. Like, I think, I think you have to just let it go. Um, Because I don't know, how could you possibly replace that? I mean, the consequences are so dire that I think if you can't let it go, that's really going to lead to a lot of struggle. For me, what I have found uh, is that I need to have a physical outlet so I can give my mind some space. I didn't think a lot about the physicality of the job of being a SEAL. And I look back now, I was like, holy shit, man. I mean, we're basically, we're professional athletes. Mm-hmm. You know, our average loadout overseas is body weight plus, I mean, in the early days, 80 to 100 pounds. Um, wow. Later on, yeah, and you're talking about climbing mountains in Afghanistan at 10,000 feet. Like, it sucks. You're on the struggle bus for sure. <laughs> and then, you know, the gear now is lighter, but you're still going to go out body weight plus 40 to 60 pounds. You have, to, you have to treat yourself like an athlete. So strength and conditioning, recovery, diet, all of that stuff. And if you just go from that to being a sedentary and then your main, you know, food source becomes Cheetos and Guinness or whatever classic pairing that you want to go with, you're going to struggle. <laughs> and for me, I, it took me a while to realize, like, if I lose the physical aspect of it, my, my mental aspect will crumble. It just, it just kind of negatively folds in on itself. And my thought process and thinking goes from being more open-minded and positive to a little bit more negative and closed-minded. So uh, you know, I started pursuing skydiving, which is a physical activity, but is very emotionally and mentally rewarding. And then base jumping, uh, I picked up bow hunting and you know, all of the activities that I have pursued, I suck at them all, but it's like, there's no end state. It's so it's the journey and the challenge and the struggle that I think that I'm looking for. It doesn't replace that sensation that you're talking about going through the tunnel, but it's a unique sensation in and of itself. Like I started doing jujitsu two years ago. I just get smashed all the time. And you have to figure out 
how to mentally stay in control to fight your way out of a bad physical situation. And it's awesome because you're physically wiped and you come out of those classes. You're like, man, I feel great. Mm-hmm. So if, for me, it was connecting those two things. Like my mental health is very tied to my physical health. I want to, I want to make sure everyone just caught that and didn't let that go over their head. Um, he says, yeah, there's no way I can replace the intensity of it. I do base jumping. I do, <laughs> I, I do skydiving and I still haven't that's, but, but again, to, to paint the picture of what, you know, the intensity and the, the commitment and the sacrifice that, that our military, you know, seals, um, you know, our arms for armed forces that they go through on our behalf. And I, I want to make sure that, <laughs> that we highlight how intense it yeah. is that base you jumping doesn't replace yeah. the thrill. <laughs> you know what? I, I'm listening and it's, there's so many similarities and I, I can imagine the shit talking that's going oh, on man. on a helicopter. When you're on a helicopter, you're going in. I mean, there's gotta, you guys gotta be just going at each other. Uh, well, at those I mean, moments. not the helicopter, yeah. right? Cause you're locked in on the mission. That's like pregame, right? As you're about to walk out, right? Like do the prayer outside the locker room. I mean, you got you guys were that relaxed. You know what? Y'all I'm were cute. good though. So <laughs> we're pretty good. <laughs> but I, I just want to hear. I mean, what was it like? It was the most aggressive A-type piranha tank that I've ever been around in my entire life. <laughs> if you slipped up at all, you were going to be utterly consumed by your best friends, and they did it out of love. But if there was a drop of water in that tank, you it was going to be a feeding frenzy. Uh, and yeah, I didn't stop on the helicopter. I've talked shit to people on target. Like if, if there's an opportunity, <laughs> I told you. If, there, if there is an opportunity, I will take it. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine that? Like you're clearing rooms, right? And you're like, Hey, fat ass. <laughs> Get out of the way. <laughs> yep. Let's talk a little bit about this skydiving because you set a world record for the, and I don't want to miss misquote it, but I, I don't know if there's enough money in this world to get, well, there probably is, but Jumping out of an airplane seems like the scary, one of the scariest things you can possibly do. What in the world possesses you to want to do that? Well, I didn't have a choice. I mean, I started jumping as an insertion method at my old job. So it started with static line parachute jumping, which that the jumping part out of the plane, although it seems scary, the static line parachutes, they come down so hard. The landing is way worse than any fear you would have <laughs> jumping out. And so I realized I didn't want to do that anymore. So I learned how to skydive. Um, and the fear, I mean, it's normal. It's, it can be scary. Um, most people are very scared. Yeah. Well, it can be. And most people are very scared the first time they leave an aircraft in flight, which is normal. It's right. That's atypical for uh, a human experience, but it's not, I mean, people make a big deal out of skydiving. It's not, it's not rocket surgery. You know, we're not putting a satellite into geosynchronous orbit. You jump out of an airplane. You just said a big word. You just said a big word. That just (laughs) geosynchronous. Hit the wall behind me. What what the hell is that? How many syllables were in that word? No. So some there's some satellites that travel around, and there are other satellites that sit there, and you know as the Earth rotates, they stay directly over one position. Geosynchronous. I knew that. I knew that. I knew that part. We're just testing you, Andy. Well done. Andy, I got another question. Have you ever seen a black man jump out? (laughs) Uh, Well, actually, you probably have. Uh, You probably have. But still, outside, okay, outside of Seal Trail. (laughs) Just be real with me. Yeah. You have. Yes, many times. I mean, skydiving is pretty ubiquitous. It it draws in men, women, old people. I've jumped with 70-year-olds. Uh, I mean, shit, it, yeah, it, it grabs everybody. 
So when they opened that door, though, what's the, the, that first jump? What was going through your head, oh, that shit. first jump? So the very first jump I did was a static line jump in Fort Benning, Georgia. And there was like 100 people on a, a C-130. And you stand up in groups of like 40. And I was right in the middle. So I couldn't even see the door. And then the group in front of you just starts running towards the door. And honestly, like you, you don't really have a choice. So I was like, hey, I'm in the plane. I'm out of the plane. I hope I did it right. You know, it's. Oh, oh no, man. So when you jump the first time, obviously in training, I mean, were you, was it a solo jump, your very first jump, or did you have someone with you? It was a solo jump, but it was static line. So that the oh, static right. line means. Okay. That's right. Correct. Okay. And so that's, and that's the progression. You start static line and then you go to free fall. When you learn free fall, you actually air, exit an aircraft and you're falling through the air. Uh, in the military, they will do one instructor holding on to you for your first jump. And in the civilian world, there are two instructors holding on to you for the first three, and then they go down to one instructor. Okay. Mm. Okay. God, gosh. That first jump. So, what, was, what was the first jump? Like, it, at, was this at night when you, when you jumped? No. No, the first jump is daytime. All five of your first jumps. Actually, no, I take that back. There's four daytime jumps and one night jump at Fort Benning. What's the night jump like? It's like jumping in day, but it's dark. <laughs> you know what, Andy? See, that's the shit that they get me here all the time. Come on, man. <laughs> the, you just you can't got, see. No, you just can't see. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's ex- it feels exactly the same. You just can't see as well. And you're like, all right, well, I hope I don't hit anybody. <laughs> so, so how did that lead into wingsuit jump? Because there's obviously a difference. And you set the world record for longest flight in a wingsuit without the pair. Horizontal distance. Yeah, okay. longest horizontal distance. Um. That came from when I was out of the military, I lived near a drop zone and I got to start skydiving more and being exposed to more disciplines. And a couple of my buddies just kept chipping away at me and talking to me about how awesome it was. And I saw some of their videos like, fuck, that does look awesome because a normal free fall out of an airplane, no, uh, no wingsuit is about 60 seconds from jump altitude to pull your parachute. But in a wingsuit, you, you can triple that. So you're flying for three minutes and you can see yourself you can see yourself making movement over the ground. I mean, I, I can get that suit going 120 miles an hour forward speed. And then you get your buddies there with you. I mean, it's awesome. So I saw the videos and it just was interesting. So uh, there's kind of a progression. You start jumping smaller suits until you can handle the bigger surface area. And, you know, you're kind of off and running. So I just follow the normal progression. So a smaller suit is where you start. But that I would imagine that's you're falling faster in a smaller suit, right? Because right. you yeah, you're falling faster with less possible horizontal speed because the surface area of the suit is smaller. What does it feel like in that free fall? What are, what's going through your head for that 60 seconds or three minutes in that case of a, of a wingsuit? I'm going to do as much awesome shit as possible <laughs> with how much time I have. <laughs> God, just so, so mind-blowing. Yeah, so when you're free falling, are you, are you one of those guys that you could do all the aerials and stuff like that, all the spins yep. and, and all that? But I've, been, I've been at it for 20 years. So that means like, yeah. time. How many okay. jumps have you done in those 20 years, you think? About 7,500. Golly. Awesome. So, okay, so the world record, what was the altitude that you jumped from? And what's a typical jump height? Most civilian DZs are going to be 13,000 feet uh-huh. uh, above the ground. That jump was uh, 36,500 feet. Oh, three times the height of a normal jump. Yep. What's Everest, uh, what's Everest elevation? I believe 26. I, I was going to say 27. I think it's, it's, it's somewhere between 26 to 28, I believe. Oh, my gosh. Did you insane. go into that jump knowing you were going for a world record? Did it, I mean, how did that work? 
Uh, I knew I was going to do, I was going to attempt one. I had no idea whether or not I was going to be successful, but I mean, I knew, I knew what we were heading into. And that was three minutes you said of a flight time or uh, without a parachute. Uh, no, I flew this suit for, I think eight minutes and 10 seconds. Before oh, deployed minutes. Parachute. <laughs> <laughs> well, he went up three times as high. Yeah. Holy eight okay. Minutes. So what was, what was the target? And, and so you did this for a cause. This wasn't just right. like, Hey, I'm going to go do this. So, so talk us through the cause, why you did it, the preparation, and then what the goal was that you were trying to hit. So after leaving the military and the realization that you can't, you know, have an impact anymore. I came to the realization that you can, but it has to be through an indirect pathway. And the pathway that I felt would be the most impactful would be supporting the families of the warfighters, because as somebody who used to do that myself, I realized the benefit of having organizations there that can help when things go wrong. Because I swear to God, every time you go on deployment, like the washing machine detonates, mm. or you know, like the the basement floods, whatever you don't want to have happen when your significant other is at home by themselves with kids is going to happen. Guaranteed. Yeah. So, yeah. And so having a support network for family members, I know it alleviates stress, stress for the guys overseas, which is a very important thing. Um, the idea to do the fundraiser was actually not mine. I was sitting in a bar in Boston and a buddy of mine was like, Hey man, you should try to do some fun. He was like, you like skydiving. Well, why don't you try to do something skydiving related uh, to raise awareness? And he actually said, he was on his phone. He's like, well, why don't you try to break this uh, wingsuit record? I said, okay, that sounds reasonable. Um, and then I partnered up with the SEAL Foundation, and the goal was to try to raise a million dollars, and all of that money uh, just went directly to the programs that they already have in place to support Gold Star families, active duty military families. Because like I said, I think it's the most, other than you know, standing shoulder to shoulder with the guys, I think it's the most impactful thing you can do. Mm, that's awesome. So, so Andy, do you have kids? I do. I have three, 16, 15, and 12. Okay. So through this, they, how much do they know about your experiences and how much have you shared your experiences with your kids? I think they know very little. Um, I will only talk to them about it if they ask. Uh, but I've, I mean, I've always told them if you ever have any questions, uh, feel free to ask regardless of what they are. I mean, I'll answer any question they have with an age appropriate response, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I don't think my kids care and I wouldn't have it any other way because yeah, that's at the end of the day, yeah, at the end of the day, it, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I'd rather be yeah. their dad. Yeah. You know, it's crazy because, you know, I was in this locker room and we're winning championships and my kids could care less about who Emmett Smith were and Troy yep. Aikman. they could care less. But I could imagine if I was a kid and I was seven years old and I was in the playground and I said, my dad's my a dad, Navy yeah. SEAL. He kick your dad's <laughs> ass. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I never heard of that happening. I, one of my sons can kind of run his mouth from time to time, but it's, <laughs> you know, they were doing their own thing. And I would come back and when I would home and I would try to, you know, go and all of their activities, take them to baseball practice and, you know, and just could try to be involved in their life. It's um, none of them have expressed a desire to join the military as they get older. My middle son has been the most inquisitive, mm -hmm. but it's randomly like every couple months, I'd be like, Hey dad, you know, the other day is like, Hey dad, have you ever been on a helicopter? I was like, yeah. You know, two thousand times, but yeah. So, so a lot of people ask me uh, all the time, like, would you let your kids play football knowing what you know now? The answer is yes for me. Like, there's no no doubt in my mind, I would I would let them because you know the the game of football taught me more than it took from me. Mm -hmm. um, but someone like you, Andy, your dad was a veteran. Um, mm -hmm. What was his response to you when you said, "This is what I want to do"? 
So my mom came from an army brat family as well. So her mother and father were in the army. Uh, and they, uh, ne- neither of my parents wanted me to join the military. Okay. Uh, they had no desire for, like, my dad didn't tell me about Vietnam. And he had a horrendous experience in Vietnam. Uh, and it took him a lot of very deep counseling to work his way through those things. And uh, the last thing I think they ever wanted for me to say was, hey, I want to join the military and be a SEAL. And when I did, the only thing that they tried to do was to support me. And they allowed me to pursue what I wanted to do, what I thought was going to make me whole. And I would have to pay that forward to my children as well. I would do the best I could to educate them about the pros and cons. I'd make sure that they went in as prepared as humanly possible. But I have to honor my parents and what they did for me by allowing my kids to do what they want to do as well. So yeah. how tough are you on your kids? I mean, you, you came up where there was, you did, like you said, you didn't have to, if you didn't have that 3.0 grade point average, I mean, have you passed that, that same style of parenting down? I try to, but you know, parenting as anybody who could tell you who has kids is a, it's an equation where there's another person on the other side, you know, so the husband and wife have to agree. And we have, there are some philosophical disagreements with mm-hmm. uh, their mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Been there. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> totally I've been there. So yeah, you, you answered my question is is what would what would be your mindset? But that's that's well said. Make sure they're fully educated on the decision and then let them in and support them because yep. if they're convicted enough, they're gonna do it regardless. Um, and it's not your life to live. It's that's right. right. So true, man. Yeah. That that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So okay, uh skydiving got into that, but but there's also roles or there's, there's, uh, you know, purpose that you found beyond just, you know, skydiving and military. You started a consulting company, you do public mm-hmm. speaking, and then also your podcast. Talk about how those, those evolved and how you, you became to start this consulting firm and, and, you know, make an impact in the corporate world. So the more I've looked back on my life, I, I've come to the conclusion that I've never had a unique thought in my entire life. Everything that I do now has been the suggestion of somebody else. So when I was still in the military, I forget how I met the guy, but we ended up becoming good friends. And he was working in an organization as like the COO. And they're like, hey, we're doing a, we're having a conference. These conferences are the thing, right? Everybody's going to have a conference. We're going to get together. We're looking for somebody to come and talk about leadership and teamwork. And you are at a SEAL team. So therefore, you must be an expert on being, you know, leadership and teamwork, which is not the case at all. Um, I wish that was the case, but it's not the case. Um, so he said, why don't you come and talk to our organization? So I wrote out the first speech that I ever gave on leadership and teamwork. And I went and I gave it to the organization. And it was, I think I talked for like 30 minutes and it was well received. And this is, shit, this is nine years ago now, something like that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it was well received. And somebody in the audience later on moved to a different company and they were looking for somebody to come in and talk about leadership. So it basically began, began through word of mouth. And then when I was doing the fundraising for the SEAL Foundation, uh, a man reached out from Barclays, totally in the blind. I was able to see on my phone uh, when donations would come in. And the average donation size, I think, even just on fundraising in general, I think it's about 50 bucks. But, you know, if you can get a lot of people to give 50 bucks, you've made, you know, a substantial amount of money. I looked down on my phone. It's like, so-and-so just donated $10,000. I was like, holy shit, that's a good amount of money. I get an email about 20 minutes later. It's like, hey. This is who I am. I work at Barclays in Singapore and my son found your video and showed it to me. And I love what you're doing. We want you to come to Singapore and talk to Barclays. And so I did. 
and this is before I ever had a website or, you know, any of the stuff that any professional idiot would have. So I'm just sitting there like word of mouth. And I go, he's like, dude, you need a website. And I was like, man, eh, that sounds like a good idea. So I made a website. Uh, he's like, you should have a company. I was like, that eh, that's also probably a pretty good idea. So I'll start one of those too. And uh, it built from that. So I got a lot of speaking gigs from just every time I would go and talk, somebody would reach out from the audience because a lot of the times organizations will bring in people from other organizations. So it was a cascading effect. And I've been amazed by the feedback. And the reality is, is I'm not talking about things that people don't understand. I'm just not a prophet in my own land. You know, I'm sure in the NFL world, nobody wants to hear an ex NFL player talk about leadership in the NFL because you're saying you already, you already know. But right. if you can have somebody come in from a different background and attack leadership from a different perspective, at the very least, it will get people to generally pay attention. So I have the background of being in the military and what I did in the military is a very large bonus for me because it gets people to pay attention to what I say. And I'm not saying anything that's crazy. They're very basic concepts that I guarantee you all three of you sitting on that couch would understand. But it built over time. And so that's where the consulting company came from in the public speaking. and then. Um, the podcast started because I was very fortunate and lucky to be introduced to Joe Rogan, um, a, a buddy of mine named Tate Fletcher. How did I meet? I met, oh, you know what? I met Tate early on when I was doing the fundraising. Again, a lot of this ties back to that fundraising. And I did a podcast as a participant and he was the guy sitting next to me. He's like, you know what? You need to go be on the fighter and the kid. He's like, I'm going to introduce you to Brian Callen and Brendan Shaw. I was like, okay. I had no idea who they were. <laughs> so I go on there and mind you, I had never listened to a podcast in my life. And I was like, mm -hmm. okay. So the second podcast I ever was on was a fighter and the kid. And then Tate introduced me to Joe and I went up there and sat and talked with Joe for a couple hours. I still had never listened to a podcast. I had no idea how powerful his platform was. I might've changed my answers on a few things. <laughs> um, <laughs> it inflamed the internet just a touch, but, uh, we ended up staying in contact and he had me back on his show again a second time. He's like, Hey man, you should do a podcast. And my actual response was, what are you, what are you talking about? I'm like, dude, your show sucks. It's not even successful. So wait until you get a successful show and then I'll listen to it. And you can start telling me advice on what I should do. Yeah. Yeah. So he obviously was fucking dying laughing. And, but again, it's like, this guy knows what he's talking about. Why would I not do this? So, and that's where it started. Yeah. No, it was that simple for you. So let me go back on this because, you know, all the, well, Tyler and I both do some public speaking. Your first time out, mm -hmm. what was the, was there fear as far as? No, because I had, been a, I had been a military instructor, like speaking in front of large mm -hmm. groups of people I had for years. And then I was also working for CrossFit on the weekends. And mm -hmm. what I was doing was the conceptual lectures at the seminars. And any, I mean, I think you guys could agree. If you do yeah. publicly speak, you'll get to a place where you're like, okay. Yeah. Everybody in this room is a human being. I'm going to probably stumble on a few words. They're not going to realize, you know what I mean? Like you just get to this point where you're like, I got it. Like it's not, I know most people are, the stats are crazy. They're more afraid of death than public speaking. It's like, holy shit, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Just get up there and publicly speak for a little bit. It's not that bad. Yeah. yeah. I agree. I think that it's one thing that's so funny and, and, and same thing you, you kind of mentioned, right. About, you know, other seals and, and we always say this, you know, you idolize somebody that's, that's on stage. But what's crazy is when you're on stage speaking, um, it's, it's crazy because everyone in the, you're scared of everyone in the crowd, 
like uh, immediately whether they're you know i'm scared a, of no man so i don't know what's going on in no man. yeah so you're just a pussy <laughs> so <laughs> down there. but i mean it, but it, but it's it, it, it's funny and when you think of nfl like when i walked into a locker room my very first nfl locker room i'm like holy sh- there's joe thomas there's colt mccoy there's seneca wallace there's all these guys that i've watched on tv and then you realize they're just dudes. dudes yeah. Like just dudes, it's yeah. just dudes. And when I met Darren, I thought Darren, I was like, dude, that's Darren Woodson, the all time leading tackler for the Cowboys. And I'm like, this dude is a douchebag. Like <laughs> how do people even like respect this guy? And it was like, it's crazy. But, and I'm sure seals like when you talked about it, right. They're, they're humble guys. They're from normal, normal backgrounds. Like you would, they're not superheroes. Like we, we make them out. I mean, they are, obviously the things that they're doing they're not now i'm telling you right now we're not half the time we're just trying not to fuck up i mean it's you're, you're dude we're calling audibles like left right and center we put together these awesome plans we get there and we're like well this plan sucked oh. all right cool let's just figure it out on the fly like there's nothing superhuman about it it's a group of people that can work well together is really what it is at the end of the day that's right and i think i think people need to remember that when you're speaking to people it's just other people it's no big yeah. deal and you're going to criticize yourself more than anybody that's listening is going to criticize. Oh, for sure. For sure. It's it, it, once you get past that cusp, if you publicly speak enough, you're like, this is it. I don't even, it's not that I don't get nervous. Now I'm just kind of more excited to get up and talk. It's like, yeah. I'm like a few mistakes. It's going to be fine, but I know the message. I've delivered the message enough times that I understand, you know, I have the breadth and depth of the material. So what is there to be worried about? Yeah. You know what the feeling I always talk about when I go public, when I speak is, you know, I may have a little anxiety going on just to make sure that, you know, I'm trying to go over some things, you know, before yep. in my head. But once they hand me the mic, yeah, it, it's, game time. it's game time. It's like all the fear is gone. And it's like showtime. It's like, man, I'm, this is where it, I'm like comfortable in that role. It feels good, actually. And that's, like, that's the one thing I was asked you about the tunnel. I mean, that's for me, that's my little, ex- the little small experience that I get on public speaking is that sort of that feel, that little anxiousness, but it's game time once we hit the field. So that's, that was, that was one of the things I want to say, but also going back, Andy, I want to talk to you a little bit more about your, your, your family life, man. Because, you know, there's so many kids that are listening that want to, to follow in your footsteps. And I'm sure you've heard, uh, you know, some have probably reached out to you at some point, but there's so many kids that are listening to this show right now that are athletes that, are probably going to go through buds. They probably feel like, well, I've, I've been an athlete most of my life. And I've heard it through many of people that are, that are former athletes or kids that are in high school. I want to be a Navy SEAL. What are you telling these kids that are coming up right now to saying, hey, this is what I want to do. I want to be a SEAL. You should just tell them to go be a doctor. <laughs> come, on. come on man your joints I'm will serious. feel so much better i promise you on the other side of being a doctor it's uh you know it parents ask me all the time hey do you think my son could be a seal and the only honest answer that i can give them is i don't know you cannot look at somebody if i were to line up 10 people you know i can't pull out the nine that are going to quit or the eight that are, that are going to quit it's a it's a when people say, hey, you know, I want to be a SEAL, the only thing that I can really tell them is take advantage of the information that you have in this day and age and educate yourself on not only to the career path, but the things that will be required of you to get into that career path before you start and make sure that the minimum standards are easily attainable for you. They should not be a hurdle that you're going to trip over. So educate, train, prepare yourself, and then I wish them the best of luck. I mean, what else could I possibly say? 
Right. Mm-hmm. I think I think one thing you've talked about, I, I think I heard it from you, was the guys that made it through were the ones that were able to look at it evolution by evolution. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't look at the full process and think, man, you know, eight months from now, whatever. They looked at the next hour or the next phase or whatever it was. So talk to us about the importance of, of staying in your lane, staying where you are, no matter what it is you're doing. Yeah, it's an exercise in not becoming overwhelmed. You know, you can look at BUDS as a 180-day-long training pipeline, or you can look at it from sunrise to sunset in one day at a time, and you'll do 180 of those. And the difference in success, even just in framing it in those two perspectives, is huge. Hell Week is five days long but you don't have to look at it as five days. They have to feed you every six hours. So instead of thinking I have to make it until Friday afternoon, why don't you just try to make it to breakfast? Mm. And then you can make it to lunch and then you can make it. And there's no, there's no hard and fast rule on how big or small that bite can be, but it has to be a bite that you are capable of dealing with because the worst decisions I've seen people make and the ones that fill them with regret for the rest of their life in the context of being at Bud's and deciding to quit is that they get overwhelmed because they focus on how far they are from their end state, the the journey that they want to complete. And we catch them in a moment, you know, where they're at a, you know, at the bottom of a sine wave emotionally and all they can think about is that. And they make these decisions because they're overwhelmed and they regret them for the rest of their life. And that's not me saying that. That's what those people have told me time after time after time when I talk to them. So, you know, one of the key things when it comes to you know, people think that mental toughness can't be taught. And it absolutely, I mean, you're going to be born with some level of it, but you can enhance whatever you have. And a lot of that enhancement comes just how you attack your, your, your goals, you know, because you're going to encounter resistance. And for some people, resistance is a roadblock. And for other people, resistance is motivation. And you need to, you need to figure out rapidly for yourself, you know, how you deal with resistance. Because if you, if you encounter resistance and it consistently turns into a roadblock, you need to get inside of your head and fix that process. Um, I mean, the SEAL community is full of people that see adversity and resistance as a motivation. It's like, oh, really? You're saying that I can't do this? Perfect. Yeah, hold my beer. Yeah, mm. yeah, I love that. How many, what would you say, and I'm sure it's small, but the percentage of people that make it through BUDS, um, but then maybe get into combat situations and realize, okay, hey, they're not ready for this or they're not the right person for this team? Or is the training so intense that it prepares you so well that you get there, you're ready to go? I would lean towards the latter, but it's, I mean, the the training oftentimes is far more difficult than real life combat situations by design. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it does a very good job. Um, Man, I don't know. That'd be a total guess on my part. I'm sure it does happen. But I also think that's a kind of a very personal and private thing. And uh, I've never had somebody come up and say that to me, but that's not to say that that's never happened. Okay. Now I've always, I've never had the opportunity to ask somebody, um, you know, Hollywood makes, you know, sucks. Skills. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, there, there we go. All right. Cool. I didn't have to ask it. Uh, but I mean, you, you look at like, you know, American Sniper and some of these movies that have been done. Why, on Why would you look at American Sniper? Uh, because I've I've just seen it, and so that, that's the only <laughs> reference that I have. But what? How far off? Okay, there we go. So that, yeah. that's my answer. But you know what? I mean, you're, that's a legitimate question because we don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, what we know is from what we're asking you. But you know, just like oh, anyone you know, else. Here's yeah. the deal: if you read it in a book or see it on a screen of any size, from your iPhone to an iMac, it sucks. Okay. <laughs> it's it, it's 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 diluted. It's overdone. What is what is the difference? Yes. 
Okay, perfect. <laughs> and so again, I think again, your phrase is tactical asshole, isn't it? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I just like I have a hard time watching football movies. It's yeah. like, oh, like this yeah. is you guys, you guys didn't lay down in traffic and read a book. <laughs> oh yeah, I saw that movie too. <laughs> I know we're all that's bullshit. Cars out in the street. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> that never happens. Yeah, what kind of shit. So all right, yeah, because that's table. <laughs> here's what here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about your new passion. You mentioned it a little bit, uh, jujitsu, because yeah. you know Darren, Tyler, and I. We all listen to Joe Rogan, obviously, and he's he's big into jujitsu. I have a three year old son. I actually signed him up for jujitsu by listening to your podcast, Joe's. It's something I'd never experienced as a kid, martial arts, any, any form of martial arts. It was always other sports. So for you, what, what is it about jujitsu that you've loved so much? It's folding clothing with people still in it. I mean, how can you <laughs> yeah. not like that? <laughs> now, it's, uh, for one, it's extremely difficult. And you go in there and you get, the, you get mopped by everybody because the attributes that you bring to the table – to a degree, they will help you, but beyond a certain experience level with your opponent, they actually work against you right from the get-go. So as guys, right, they come in and they try to grip too hard or they go too hard and they'll either have a cardio failure or a grip failure or in just in trying to muscle through something. It's all about angles and leverage. Um, but it's, but at the same, so it's very physical, but at the same time, in the middle of the roles, I'm thinking also very deeply about what's going on to try to understand the game plan that somebody else is trying to apply to me, right? Because it, it's, it's competition. It's true. I mean, I do believe it is. A, it's, I don't think there's any one, you know, I don't want to use the word system, but let's say philosophy that is perfect for self-defense. I mean, if you're, I mean, first off, people listening to this, don't get into fights, walk away from them because it's not worth it even if you win. But if you are forced into that situation, jujitsu is not actually necessarily enough. You probably should know how to punch, you know, maybe know how to kick as well. If it gets to a range where you put your hands on somebody, then yeah, that's grappling. So by definition, jujitsu is going to do well. Um, but it's just really challenging. Um, and I think that's what I enjoy about it the most. It's incredibly challenging. But when you start to figure it out, there is total and complete dominance over another human being. There's nothing that they can do. And it's kind of fascinating. I mean, people who are much larger than you as well, the yeah. physical strength, it strips away. Yeah. I think of like Gracie's, you know, and, and Royce Gracie, when he fought and the, it's I mean, not Royce, it's hoist because oh. Gracie's got, of course in Brazil, every R is a huh. So yeah. it's not Rickson, yeah. it's, and it, but not the second R. If there's two R's in the name, you Trust me, it drives me nuts because I say it wrong every time. What? What? It's like, is it? I don't want to say Henner and Hiram and you know. Henner and Hiron, right? Because there's Hiron. Hiron is R I R O N. It's like why is the first R a huh and the second R is a ruh? You guys are fucking me up here. Portuguese man, come on. Henner and Hiron. I actually had Henner on the podcast. He was fantastic. I was gonna say I just heard that episode, and one thing he was talking about, which is mind blowing to me, is you know, a 175 pound guy can just whip yes. you around like you're a child. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and that was, and that was my point, right? Early UFC is dominated. Like the Gracie's absolutely dominated because no one, no one had the, the understanding of positioning, like, like a jujitsu, a trained black belt or whatever the, the, the highest level that the Gracie's are of jujitsu because they literally folded these huge dudes, Tank Abbott, yep. and all these guys just fold them. And then BJ Penn's another one, right? Like he's a guy that, that 
you know, yes, like his flexibility plays into it, but I mean, his ability to get into positions and out of positions and use your strength against you is unbelievable. I was a wrestler. I was more on the brute side. So like yeah. a little different, but just the understanding of positioning. But you, you would do great at jujitsu to a degree where you would struggle. And this is from my understanding of wrestling. I didn't wrestle is that wrestlers hate being flat on their back. That's yes. like the number one. Don't do 100%. that. Yes. But in jujitsu, that's such an offensive position. Like I just yeah. came from an hour of open mat before talking to you guys. And there are so many submissions and sweeps from flat on your back. So wrestlers though are unbelievable because they understand the connection and the pressure and it's, they're really hard to deal with, but at about, I would say the purple belt level, a purple belt can deal with a probably like a D one wrestler pretty well, but beyond that, the wrestler is going to dominate because of their understanding of connection and mm -hmm. leverage and angles and, and they're just, it's crazy that wrestlers will knock it on their back. <laughs> it is. It really, because it's, it's a sign of defeat and that's what it yeah. is. And that's ingrained. And I mean, I wrestled for 15 years, so it was, I mean, it was something for me that like, it was so ingrained, but I don't know. Yeah. My, my respect for jujitsu is, and, and I, I just, I don't know enough, uh, you know, other martial arts forms are familiar with enough, but jujitsu to me has got to be on the top of that list. But like you said, you've got to complement it with, you know, with well, you do, and you know. look at the UFC. I mean, there's a variety of martial. And here's the thing: I it's the only martial art that I've ever participated in, and I wish I had done it years ago. And you know, I'm a fan of of hard sciences, not soft soft sciences. And not that the UFC is necessarily a science, but there's an experiment going on in there for sure, right? Mm -hmm. If Taekwondo was the best martial art, there would be Taekwondo artists in there just whipping the shit out of people, or ninjutsu, or all, any of these other jitsus. And it's not what you see is a mix of wrestling, jujitsu, striking yep, yeah, right. and, kick, yep. and kickboxing. Kickboxers do great. And, and that's about all you actually see there. I yeah. mean, that really is all that you see. And I don't really need much other proof than that. People are like, Oh, well, it, you know, uh, Krav Maga would work if you allowed eye gouges. It's like they did in the first UFCs. Yeah. Those guys mm -hmm. got fucked up. That's so. right. <laughs> right. It's a pretty, pretty big uh, test case there. I mean, what are we, 260? What are we, UFC 2-something? Yeah. I mean, so why reinvent the wheel? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a testing ground that you can kind of sit back and you see what works and you see what doesn't. Like, okay, I believe now, after you said after 260 uh, iterations of this test, it's like, mm -hmm. huh, seems to be the same result yeah. every time. Yeah. yeah. So how big, of a, how big of a UFC fan are you? You know, I didn't really appreciate it that much until I started jujitsu because I didn't understand why some of the fights were ending. There's a lot of very subtle, um, like chokes and angles and cranks that until you feel it, like I would just watch somebody tap. I'm like, what? I'm like, pussy, I wouldn't tap there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then you start getting into those positions. You're like, oh. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And here's the thing when I go and I train jujitsu, we're not hitting each other in the face. Like, we're. They, they have a class for that where, where they lightly strike each other. You know, you put gloves on, they call it hits, uh, jits with hits because it changes the jujitsu. So I'm just trying to learn the actual foundations of the right. art form. You watch what's going on at the UFC. These guys are doing very high level jujitsu while defending themselves from knees, kicks, elbows, elbows yeah. punches. Like, so, I mean, they're, they're the high level practitioner stuff going on in there is just unbelievable. And now that I understand, I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. like these dudes are savage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the, the guys, the respect that you have until you're like really truly choked out or, or in an arm bar <laughs> right. or something like that, right. the guys that can push through that and not tap, I mean, the respect is, is through the roof. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, you, and you know, the other interesting thing about jujitsu, like I said, I have my, I signed my three-year-old up and for me, it was more about the discipline. Why did you sign yourself up? That's a good question. I'm too much of a pussy. Hey, come on, let's go. Hey, I'll, do, I'll, do, I'll do it with you. You know what? I signed mine up too, and I still ain't getting yeah, it. Yeah. Throw it out there to the wolves. But bro. The, the draw was, and, and you, you're calling me out now. I'm going to have to go sign up now. <laughs> but the draw was the discipline, all the skills, besides just the actual jujitsu, right? Oh, Everything sure. he would learn, he, it, and he loves it. Oh my gosh, he loves it. And, and the respect he has for his coach, and there's yep. so many. Other thing, other benefits besides the physical benefit, but the other thing you're working, you're working on a lot of life skills on the mat that will be applicable off, and right. they don't even realize that they're happening. You no, know, yeah. you know, interpersonal relationships. There's a lot of trust that you put in a training partner. I mean, if they don't let go of a choke, you could absolutely kill somebody. If they don't let go of an arm bar or a, a joint lock, you can blast somebody's joint into oblivion. So there's a lot of trust that's put into your training partner. And you also have to become comfortable with losing, which is a lesson that I think a lot of young Mm -hmm. people in this world right now, they need desperately Mm -hmm. because I don't care how much of a unique snowflake you think you are. The world is going to kick you squarely in the teeth and you need to deal with that. that. Now when you're, and this is just another random question, are you training uh, in a gi or are you in shorts and a shirt? What, what kind of, so I'll do the most of the classes are a gi, but I'll try to make sure that, uh, so we do a class for an hour and then open mat, like live sparring for an hour afterwards. And what I'll do is I'll just pop my gi top on and off. I wear a rash guard underneath yeah. and that way you can do the uh, gi and no gi. Okay. Yeah. 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 You talk about, you talk about life lessons. I've heard you guys mention that the average time it takes to become a black belt is 10 years. Is that correct? I believe so. But I mean, you, the, a better person to answer that would be somebody right. who's been doing it longer than me. Well, yeah, I guess just the overall point, just like you talk about life lessons. I mean, there is no instant gratification in jujitsu, I would imagine. I mean, it's, it takes years of effort and time and, and energy. And getting choked out. And, yeah. 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 And, and taking losses. And, yeah. and like yeah. you said, we, we've, and I'm a younger, I mean, I'm 32, so I'm part of the generation, unfortunately, that, that has that mindset. But we see instant success. We see these overnight successes. We forget what, what time and energy it takes to become those successes. Yeah, and that's why I hate social media because it's only mountaintops. Yeah. You don't see the valleys in between. Right. That's right. Yeah, right. So and then stop living on social media, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what's next, Andy? What's next in your life? I mean, I, I know you're not done, man, so you're still pushing. What's next in your life? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been interesting as we're all being, I mean, impacted differently. Like I would have always preferred to come down and be in a room with you guys, but yes. the world's crazy right now. So public speaking, guess how that's going for 2020. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, so I've been focusing more on the podcast. I'm in the studio right now. I actually built out a studio with my spare time because I had a lot of it. And, um, I'm just trying to do, uh, I guess, I don't know, prof- do better or professionalize more of the things that I'm doing. So focusing on the podcast and, you know, if the public speaking stuff ever comes back, it'll come back. But if not, I'm actually really enjoying the lack of travel. Awesome. It's allowed me to go train jujitsu. I mean, I'm usually there five, six days a week for a couple hours a day. Um, and I'm loving it and it's healthy for me physically. It's healthy for me mentally. So I don't have any crazy goals on the horizon. I just want to do more with the things that I'm already doing. I yeah. love that. Talk, talk to us about the podcast. We're all huge fans of clear and high. Yeah. What, what is it about the podcast that you've enjoyed? Maybe more than you thought you would getting started sitting down and talking to people who have fascinating stories. I mean, I really could give two shits about myself, but I love talking about, you know, talking to people about their experiences. 
And it, you know, like I said about social media, everybody talks about, you know, mountaintops. I'd rather talk about the valleys and the successes yeah. that come from failure, stacked on failure, stacked on failure, stacked on failure that lead to the success. To me, that's all that matters. Like, oh, awesome. You're at a peak point in your life. That's great. I hope you can maintain that mentality when you're at a low point in your life and you're willing to talk about the struggles and when you fell short equally as you are, hey, look at me on the mountaintop. I mean, mm-hmm. I, don't know. I think as a society, we'll learn more from the the wave bottoms as opposed to the wave tops. Absolutely. Yeah, well said. I love that. I love that. You got Andy, your, yeah. You got your question, man. Yeah. We got a finisher yeah. for you. This is the uh, yeah. this is the question we like to ask all of our guests at the end of each episode. And and I'm very interested to hear what yours based on what you just said there. If you Blue. could go if you could go Seven. back <laughs> walks on the beach. Blue. There you go. <laughs> if you could go back to any point in your life and tell yourself one thing. Now I want to caveat and say I'm not saying you go back and change anything, but if you could just go tell yourself one thing, where do you go and what do you tell yourself? I would go back to right before I got married and I would tell myself that I need to grow into who I am more before committing to trying to grow with somebody else. Mm-hmm. I don't think I was ready at the time. Oh, that's great. That is great, man. Hey, that's, that's transparency, brother, yeah. for you. And Andy, look, man, I mean, you said something right now when, when a minute ago about the reason you started the podcast. And it's the exact same reason we started the podcast. The exact same yeah. reason. Because yeah, identical. We, we hear, we, we see, you know, the Instagram post and someone has made it, but we don't see the peaks, the valleys. I mean, all the, the, the hardships that you had to go through, the struggles and the landmines and you gotten your ass kicked. You know, those, I mean, and that's, that's the reason why I wanted to do this show because I wanted to, he- I wanted everyone to hear those stories of who they claim to be successful and, and, and hear that, you know, they, they went through this shit too, man. They went through some tough times. And, and if I can get my 19 year old to tune into your show or tune into my show and, and hear that, man, I, that's growth, man, because you know, they're really going to understand, especially knowing where the suicide rate is today, man. And a lot of these young kids just yep. can't get their minds around well, losses. And to know they're not alone. Yeah, they're right? not alone. Like, yeah, yeah. you may see, yeah. you know, yeah. people posting the successes and that's great, but a majority of us are either on a descent or on a climb or at the bottom of the valley. But just know that the Darren Woodsons, the Andy Stumps, the, the Ben Gibbs, like they got, they've gone through that stuff. Like they, it, and, and share what they did either to get out of it or to go yeah. through it or to keep a positive outlook or whatever it is, man. Cause, and, and what you just said, you know, about, you know, okay, I needed to, I needed to know who I was before I committed to someone else mm-hmm. and try to change maybe for someone else. Right. Is that the transparency of that? Right. Yeah. We, I connect with someone that's transparent rather than someone to tell me how to do what I'm supposed to do. Like, I want to hear why, like, yeah. I want to hear yep. the authentic response from someone that, Hey, I struggled too, but guess what? I know you're struggling, but you can make through it, make it through it. Cause I made it through it. So I, I appreciate, man, your, your transparent response. And, uh, man, we wish all the best to you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on, on the mat, hopefully, you know, the chokeouts are to a minimum, <laughs> um, the joints stay intact. Not as minimum as I'd like him to be. But man, uh, the podcast, man, doing a great job on that. Love listening. Keep that up. Hope that continues to grow. Uh, and, and to everything else, man, with, with your three kids, hope, uh, hope everything just continues to progress. I know it's a weird time for them at their ages. 
right now too. It's kind of a, kind of a weird deal, man. I wouldn't wish that on any kid. Yeah. A little weird for everybody. Yeah. They're we're kind yeah. of figuring it out day at a time. Yeah. yeah. All right, awesome. man. Well, hey, we're going to have you back on, man. And in I, person. Hey, yeah. you know what? I was telling Ben, I said, you know, before the show, I was like, man, I wish I can get an invite on Andy's on Andy's show. Like, I'm begging. He's only show a podcast. Yeah, you, hey, hold on. You I'm know begging to get on. I already told you I'd have you on. Save your dignity, man. You are begging. But you didn't really give me the, like, the full core press, man. I just want to <laughs> <laughs> like, really – <laughs> I want you to be able to come up to Montana. It's so much better. Face oh, face. oh, yeah, that yes. would. That yes. would. All right, yes. I, that's out there. I'll, I, I'll catch I'll, – I'll get my own flight out, and, and I will show up for sure. I'd love All right. Well, that. let's – well, we're in. We're connected, so let's figure out a date and let's get it done. I definitely right. want to have you on for sure, man. All right, bro. Awesome. Thanks again, Andy. Thanks again, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, Andy. Appreciate it.